I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are to recipes she's been enjoying for Merrick. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Oh, hey, it's that second cousin who tries to talk to you about sports stats and can't read that you don't care. Allie Ward, here with another episode of Ologies. Woo, what a week, my friends. What a week. I'm recording this after a few days of being glued to live streams of government hearings, and I'm just, I'm hoping everyone's taking care of themselves, maybe going out to take a breather, talking to a frog, letting yourself buy the fancy salad dressing at the store, because sometimes you just gotta unwind. So this episode hopefully will help. It's so amazing. I think you will find it equivalent to like a bag of jelly beans that you've selected out of the bulk bins where there's not a single bean in a flavor you don't enjoy. It's just pure delight. And some of the best long form storytelling I have ever heard. I just, I set up the mics I forced a world-respected ologist to talk into them, and I, I interjected occasionally with some gasps. She's amazing. Before we get to that feast, let's do some formalities. Let's tuck our napkins into our collar, if you will. Thank you to all the folks who have logged into patreon.com slash ologies to donate a buck or more a month to support the show, and that helps me pay a wonderful editor. Hi, Steven, and lets me continue doing this, which is... It's my favorite thing to do, so thank you for that. Thank you to everyone who gets merch at ologiesmerch.com. There's some really great fall college sweatshirts, backpacks are up, bird-patterned mugs, just a whole mess of awesome. Thank you also to the amazing producers at Linton Entertainment, who make not one but two of the science shows I work on, and this Saturday, I'm just going to plug it. I'm going to plug it right now. October 6th, my very own solo science show premieres on The CW. It's called Did I Mention Invention with Allie Ward, and I don't know how to celebrate other than just like squealing into a jar and then running atop a mountain to release it like Yosemite Sam. Um, if you're hearing this before noon on Tuesday, October 2nd, I'm doing a Reddit AMA at noon Pacific time. So just putting those things out there to celebrate this new show. All right. Thank you to listeners who rate and subscribe. You guys keep ologies in the front of new eyeballs and ear holes growing this kind of curious cult of ologites. And especially thank you to the ones who take a minute to review because I am, I'm nothing 
if not creepy, and you know I read them all, and then I present you with a still moist one, such as this review from VSK Stark, who says, this podcast is amazing in so many ways, and then they say some nice stuff about me that I'm too embarrassed to read aloud, and then also say, the editing is genius, and the content, I would say, is Juicy Spicy Learning. It brings a smile to my day when I commute. I highly recommend it. Juicy Spicy Learning. I think we might need a sweatshirt that says Juicy Spicy Learning. Am I right? We'll work on it. Okay, on to the ology. Functional morphology. That's a lot of syllables. What in the Sam hell does it mean? Well, it pretty much means the study of form and function. So the anatomy of an organism and then what the hell that anatomy does. So like, why do we have eyelashes? What's up with the little headstool things on top of a giraffe face? Why do some animals get to have so many stomachs? And butts. Why? So I originally heard of this ologist and I thought, okay, whale scientist. Her bio on Twitter says whale scientist. She is the foremost expert on carving up, sometimes explosively decomposing whales on beaches worldwide. But I learned, thrillingly, that she deals with so much more than whales. So this is not the cetology or whale episode. We'll get to that in the future. A differentologist. This one, functional morphology, we cover way more than that. So she's an anatomist who compares all kinds of species to each other to see what's similar and what's different between them, why they work, and how, and how maybe it can help us. So she's a professor at the Center for Anatomy and Functional Morphology and Department of Medical Education at Mount Sinai in Manhattan, New York. She has appeared on Sex in the Wild on PBS, uh, the British Channel 4 show Inside Nature's Giants, which also airs on PBS, where she dissected a hippo, a giraffe, a fin whale, a crocodile, a giant squid, polar bear, so much more. And she's on Mythical Beasts, which is an eight-episode series premiering October 14th on Science Channel. It's all about the fabled creatures like cyclops and vampires and sea monsters and dragons and where we got the idea for them. She's amazing. So I met up with her at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan, and we went through this labyrinth of halls. We headed through a door labeled functional morphology to her office and then set up shop in the break room next to a tray of muffins I wanted to eat. So you won't hear the muffins because muffins are silent and I did not eat them, but you might hear the occasional din of a coworker chatting as they passed, which is kind of like you're right there in the break room with us, but without access to the muffins. This human person can spin a yarn. I loved it. Please sit back and enjoy tales that are porch-worthy, like whiskey around a campfire legend-grade stories, as you also pick up the hows and whys of deconstructing animals that have passed into the great beyond. You'll hear about whale hands and pickled primates and run-ins with danger and tarps and tools and art and fainting and the winding road that led this ologist to her perfect job. So prepare to be enthralled and inspired by functional morphologist, anatomist, Dr. Joy Reidenberg. Oh, no worries. 
I do so much editing, so pl- you can pretty um, much confess to murder and I'll cut it out. And now in functional morphology, would you say that you're a functional morphologist or would you say that you're a cetologist who studies whales? I actually would call myself a comparative anatomist. So I wouldn't use either word. Okay. You know, it doesn't have the ology in the I know. name. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I do study anatomy mm-hmm. of lots of different animals. And whales are just one of my favorite animals to look at because they're so weird. They are crazy weird. Let's go back. Tell me when you got so interested in animal anatomy. And are you also interested in human anatomy? Or, or when did like when did the bug... Of cutting stuff up and looking at stuff, getcha. So, so that's a that's a multi pronged question. So I'll have to give you a multi pronged answer. Bring now. it on. All right. So first of all, I am interested in human anatomy, or I wouldn't mm-hmm. be at a medical center. Right. So it's it's definitely one of our most interesting animals we can look at in the world are humans because mm-hmm. humans are so incredibly adapted for things that other animals can't do. Starting with what we're doing right now: language, speech. Hey. You know the ability to produce the speech sounds is uniquely human. You get lots of animals that get close, but they're not the same. They can't make the full range of vowels that we can make. So our anatomy in the area of the throat is really spectacularly different from all other animals. And we can get into that if you want. Mm -hmm. But they are an interesting animal into themselves. And then, of course, there's a whole range of other animals. So how did I get into it? Well, I don't know. How long is this interview? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the cliff notes. I'll have to to say it really probably started before I knew that anatomy was a discipline. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that you could cut up things, look inside, and call that a career. Mm -hmm. That seemed to be the kind of thing that was relegated to horror films. Right. (laughs) You know, so it, it wasn't really thought of as a career for me, you know. And probably that started with... When I was a kid, I just I loved getting close to animals. I really wanted to learn as much as I could about nature. The problem was that animals ran away from you. So you, yeah, that's you, really, true. <laughs> you really couldn't look at them up close unless they were your pets. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I'm not going to cut open a pet. I love pets, you know, that they, they have to have their, their place as a pet and be alive and be with you. And so you can cuddle them and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But the animals in nature, they were also alive and fun and cuddly, but they wouldn't stay with you unless right. you tried to cuddle them and they'd bite you. So that wasn't a great interaction. But every once in a while, you got a chance to get really close to one if it was dead mm-hmm. because it wasn't going to run away. Right. So, you know, one of the biggest arguments I used to have with my parents was whether or not I was allowed to touch the roadkill. <laughs> <laughs> I love this woman. So uh, there I would be, you know, fascinated with whatever it is that fell on the ground, you know, dropped out of a tree or got, you know, or got run over by a car, whatever I could find that was in some, some capacity left where I could find it. I wanted to, I wanted to see it. I wanted to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Did you carry gloves with you as a oh, kid? I didn't know what gloves were. Are you kidding? <laughs> Your parents you know, my, like, my cat would come home with a chipmunk, and I would take <laughs> the dead chipmunk that it left on the front doorstep, and I would hide it from my parents so they wouldn't know I was looking at it. And I took the skin off the chipmunk, and I I saved it. I didn't know how to tan skin. I was I was like, I want to be like Native American. I want to learn all about it. And, you know, back then there wasn't the internet to look it up and figure mm-hmm. it out. So I'd like get books out on things like that. Mm-hmm. And I tried tanning the skin of this chipmunk and I thought, this would be awesome. It's got this, you know, racing stripes on it. You know, yeah. it's really cool looking. It's already dead. It's, yeah, I can't hurt it. It's already mm-hmm. dead, right? And I had done a really great job and I was like so excited because I was going to use this chipmunk fur 
as a saddle blanket for one of my toy horses. That's pretty legit. Okay, yeah. So that was like I thought this was really legit. I had I had hid it in a specific place in a wooden box and in our yard and I came out later to check on it a couple of days later and a raccoon had taken it. And I only know that because I saw the footprints. You know, so I was like, oh man, oh, so frustrated. No. So side note, I just learned that raccoons are incredibly smart. They remember tasks years after learning them, which is more than I can say for myself. And also their name in Spanish is derived from an Aztec phrase, meaning the one who takes everything in its hands. So next time you're making a tiny saddle out of a fresh dead chipmunk, watch out for them because they are lurking in the trees at dusk waiting for your back to be turned. Don't freak out, though. Also, if you wish there was a holiday to celebrate raccoons internationally, well, boy, howdy, good news and bad news. You just missed it. It was October 1st. So now you have a whole year to make felted bandit masks and learn how to scratch up palm trees using only your overgrown toenails. Okay, anyway, Joy's childhood. So that's how my, my adventures would often go. But then I discovered fishing. I really liked fishing. I thought fish were really amazing looking animals. Mm -hmm. They're so hydrodynamically shaped. And then they have all these interesting colors. You know, mammals are pretty boring when it comes to colors. Birds and fish, well, they've got it. Yeah, they do. They do have it going on. And they've got crazy mouths. And some of them have big lips. Some of them have yeah. like no lips. And like, the giant eyes that never close. Yes. And these fins that come out of nowhere that they just open up like a Chinese fan. And, and I love that. I just really, really loved that. And so I would go fishing. And um, my dad would agree to take me fishing because it was on the way to taking my brother to, to race go-karts because it was at the same place at the beach. So I would hang out on the dock fishing while they would race go-karts and I'd come home with all these stinky, smelly things and he would tolerate it as long as I filleted all the fish. Okay. <laughs> and later he would even take me out. We, we got a small boat and we'd go out on the boat and he would get madly seasick because he would sit there and read the newspaper the whole time which is not what you do on a rocking boat no but again he would tolerate all this as long as i would deal with all the fish and so i was happy to do that because you know we were going to cook them and we we're going to waste them but i got very distracted filleting fish you know I'd, I'd open up the fish and then i would be wow look at these feathery red things what are these things of course they were gills but i didn't know what they were uh -huh. and then the intestines like wow the spaghetti just keeps on going you know? <laughs> and the muscles were like in w's I, I thought that was the weirdest thing how the muscles zigzag mm -hmm. back and forth and i'd sit there forever playing with the skeleton after i'd fillet the meat off like wow you know and my mother would be screaming from the from the kitchen get on with it we want to eat you know? <laughs> And that was my introduction to anatomy, but I didn't know that was a career at right. all. So, I'm sorry, it's not the Cliff Notes version. No, I love it. Are you kidding? <laughs> Bring it on. So, fast forward, um, I want to I want to go to college, but I don't really know what I want to do. And my dad is and are, are trying to advise me, and and my dad in particular said, well, you should really know what career you want so you can pick a college that's really tailored to what you want to do for your career. Mm -hmm. That was pretty sage advice coming from parents who hadn't gone to college. And it was again, it wasn't a thing where you can look up on the internet and find all this. So you have to wait for the brochures to come in the mail and mm -hmm. read them and then write away for more material or actually go and visit the places, which is really hard to do. Yeah. Some of them were pretty far away. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have the resources to go fly over to different places. So I remember reading about a lot of them and, and still being very confused, not knowing what I wanted to do. Because what kid in 11th grade or even early 12th grade knows exactly what they want to do. Yeah. I mean, some people might have a good idea. They want to be a firefighter or a police officer or a ballerina. 
I just wanted to play with animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my dad would say, no one's going to pay you to play with the animals. <laughs> Cut you now. So, You're like, so I kept thinking, okay, uh, you know, maybe, you know, and I'm a, I'm a smart kid, too. I'm doing really well in school. I'm in the top 5% of my class. And I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do with all this information, right? Now I want to be a dog walker. I've got to do something more. <laughs> Besides, it's, you can't see inside the dogs. Well, that's true, but I remember I didn't know seeing inside was was the ultimate goal. It just Mm -hmm. was a way to get close to the animals, to Mm -hmm. understand more about them. I I was just as fascinated with the outside and like behaviors too. It's just they didn't do that when they were dead. So (laughs) So I could only only do what I could do when I get that close. The rest of the time I'd spend at the window, glued to the window, watching birds at the bird feeder or wherever. You know, I was always watching the animals and catching snakes and bringing them home and catching polywogs from the pond and putting it in a tank and raising frogs out of that you know mm-hmm. it just i loved all of that nature stuff my mother thought it was like crazy to come home with a snake on each arm yeah. can i keep them <laughs> if long as it fits in the tank you can keep whatever you want so i had tanks all over the garage that's <laughs> so dope you would have been such good friends are you kidding me we once put a um a dead snake with a ken head on it in the freezer to surprise my grandma it did oh, not God. go over well but we loved it but yeah i get it now it's starting to sound a little bit like that that kid next door in Toy Story. <laughs> oh no, Sid! You guys don't get it, do you? Once we go into Sid's house, we won't be coming out. Well, we didn't like my grandma very much, but we love dead snakes. <laughs> my grandma was not a nice person. Anyway, back to her backstory, which I love. So here I am talking with my dad about this, and he says, "Well, you really need to figure out your career." And he hands me the yellow pages of the phone book. You know, back then it was actually a book yeah. know, a thing online. And, you know, we up until then I used it as a high chair for me to sit on so I could reach the table. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really something we looked in very often. But that's where you'd find things like plumbers and electricians yeah. and whatever, you know, pizza joints and whatever. And so I'm flipping through this yellow pages because to him, every career was in the yellow pages. That's a good, I mean, you know? that was a good resource back then. It was because, the, the, again, there wasn't the internet. We couldn't look things up. This was the one place where everything was accumulated, as far as my dad knew, that was a career. Yeah, or the classifieds, which and, is, I would look in the classifieds. Which is even more boring. Right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Quick question. When was the internet invented? I didn't know, so I did look it up. Now, in 1983, by a Connecticut chap named Vint Cerf. V-I-N-T-C-E-R-F. That sounds like what happens when you're playing a really shitty hand of Scrabble and someone bursts in and says, hey, what should I name this king? Anyway, he is one of the main inventors of the infrastructure of the internet, but it wasn't until 1990 when Sir Timothy Berners-Lee, his friends call him Tim B.L., no joke, invented the World Wide Web and decided to just give it away for free, thus missing out of literally trillions of dollars of monies like he could have owned earth but he was like hey man i just want people to pass around photos of moths who are randy for lamps during a time when justice seems out of reach thanks tim biel anyway joy was leafing through physical paper and yellow pages browsing for her future and I'm looking through, and what am I not seeing? I'm not seeing anatomist. I'm not seeing comparative anatomist. I'm not seeing biologist. I'm not seeing scientist. I'm not seeing researcher. I'm not seeing professor. I did see doctor, but only medical doctors, right? Mm-hmm. I did think eventually I was going to get to Z, and I would be happy because I'd get to zoo. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'd be zookeeper, right? So I got a lot of pages to flip through. I got pretty far along when I got to veterinarian. Oh. And I thought, oh, okay. 
maybe that's a career for me because it's animals, you know, and they don't have to be dead animals. Mm-hmm. I didn't have this thing about it. Stuff didn't need to be dead yeah. for me to be interested in it. Although I did collect a lot of things, you know, shells, feathers, bones, mm-hmm. rocks, you know, what, yeah. whatever I could collect, Teeth, you know, nature stuff. Yeah, nails, exactly. sure. Everything. So I thought veterinarian. So I went to go intern for a vet. And my first day on the job, there was a dog that had been hit by a car and they were going to do an operation. And he invited me to scrub in on this operation and show me how to scrub in. But I was basically just observing. And I was really excited because I was going to get to see this dog fixed. I was going to get to see, I don't mean neutered, I mean yeah. fixed up. And the dog was, you know, definitely had a terrible injury. And I thought, well, I, I'm going to get to see the inside on this animal. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool because it's a living inside. It's not like the dead stuff mm-hmm. that I'd seen before. And I was so fascinated. I was riveted. I was watching this, you know, wide-eyed and, you know, totally full of wonder. And I started to get lightheaded. And I was like, what is happening? Oh. I'm really interested in this. I'm not nauseous. I'm not squeamish. What is going on? And I started getting more and more lightheaded. Oh, no. And I was so embarrassed. And I, but I didn't want to fall into the sterile surgical field. So I told the veterinarian I was getting a little lightheaded. I thought, well, maybe the room is too warm or maybe I didn't eat enough breakfast or something. What I was having was called a vasovagal reaction, oh. which is something you absolutely can't control. It's essentially an autonomic discharge of your nervous system mm-hmm. that... No one can predict it's going to happen, and no one really knows why it happens. And then it goes away almost as fast as it comes on. I was so curious. Why does this happen? It happens technically when the vagus nerve is stimulated, and it causes a sudden drop in heart rate, and also maybe the dilation of blood vessels in your legs, which causes blood to pool there and away from your brain, causing you to pass out. It can happen from standing too long or from heat exposure, stress, or the sight of blood. I like to think that watching a veterinary operation inspired this Pitbull Kesha duet. It's going down. I'm yelling to But whatever, it's pretty incapacitating. So mm-hmm. that was happening to me. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to be a veterinarian if I pass out when I'm trying to do an operation. Mm-hmm. So the veterinarian sent me out of the room, which I was very embarrassed about. And, and later came to talk to me and said, you know, don't let this go to your head. Don't let this deter you. Because it might just be a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. And he explained what it was, what I was going through. And, and I'm glad he gave me that second chance and asked me to come back. Because I didn't ever have that again. Really? Oh, man. This is like the blissful happy ending to a kid's movie. This is just the story America needed. I never had it again. Oh. I, it was only once. And I still don't exactly know why it happened. But I think it has something to do with my brain trying to process the idea that this dog was... Not feeling pain because it was anesthetized, mm-hmm. but clearly had enough injuries to feel a lot of pain. Yeah. And and I kept thinking, but that's got to be painful. But no, it's not feeling it, but it's got to be painful, but it's not feeling it. And that conflict kept going around and around in my head. Mm-hmm. Maybe that had something to do with why I couldn't process what was happening. But maybe I was just hyper excited about it all because I got to see everything. Yeah. I mean, that's like a big day. That's like a lead up of uh, so many animal bones and skeletons. And you've already done field work pretty much like, you know, like amateur field <laughs> yeah. work. And yeah, like that's a big day. It was a very big experience. And here I was going to get to see it, it was going to be controlled in a, a setting where it was alive. There was just so much happening. Mm-hmm. But I thought maybe I couldn't be a veterinarian, but he convinced me otherwise that I could. So I applied to Cornell University because they had a vet school. I wasn't applying to vet school. I just wanted the undergraduate 
part first, yeah. which is the stepping stone you need to go to vet school. So I I got accepted at Cornell. I was very happy about that. Yeah, that's a big deal. It was a big deal, especially for my family where I was the first one to go to college. Yeah, you're like, Ivy League, hello. But Joy says since it costs the same tuition, she enrolled in the arts and sciences department because, frankly, she didn't know if she wanted to stay with science. Because I'm also an artist. Oh, so you are? So there was another part of me that I hadn't talked about, which is that I am an artist. And I didn't really know which career I wanted. Because if I wasn't going to be a veterinarian, I was definitely going to go into art. Mm-hmm. And not only an artist, but also a musician. So there's, I'm definitely heavy on that side of the brain as well. <laughs> it sounds like both sides of your brain are very good. <laughs> that's, that's why I can walk straight and not fall yeah. over, right? Yeah. <laughs> Heads up, that was an anatomy joke. Thank you, Joy. I majored in a science field, but I minored in an art field. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of pursuing both in this college. And as I got closer to graduation, I was trying to think, what kind of job do I really want? Do I really want to go to vet school? I, I, th- I thought that's what I was set on. So Joy was on track to be a vet. She took four years of classes to prepare her for it. But she started interviewing vets to ask about their lives and found, nope, nope, was not what she wanted to do. Apparently, it involves a lot of spay and neuter surgeries and euthanasias. But more complex medical procedures are usually declined by pet owners just because of cost. So this bummed her out. She thought, maybe a wild animal vet? Eh, there's not a lot of job openings in that field. So she kept brainstorming. And then I thought about, what about farm vet work? You know, Right. And they said, well, most of that is vaccinating herds of cattle. Oh. I was like, mm. totally not into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then there's this program called AquaVet. I thought, oh, that's where I belong because mm-hmm. I really love marine biology because I still still never left that fascination on fish. Right. Of course. And I had actually, in the interim, had worked for the National Marine Fisheries Service. I'd worked for the National Oceanic Society. I'd spent a summer working at the Bermuda Biological Station for research. I had done a lot of marine-oriented things. I was very interested in that. I wanted to be an AquaVet. Now, this would be the veterinarian for all the aquariums or the uh, oceanariums. Ooh, cool. You know, and you take care of their fish, you take care of their dolphins. And I was like, dolphins, totally. Yeah, I want to do that. But there was one aquavet. And he, one? One. For the whole Northeast Coast. What? That was it. There That's was one. ridiculous. Even, even Pepsi has Coke. I mean, come <laughs> on. <laughs> you got to have a little competition. So, so I thought, I'm going to have to wait for this guy to retire before I'm going to have a career. Right. And he was still young at the time. So I was like, okay, that's probably not going to happen yeah. in my lifetime. She started exploring the art side and thought, maybe medical illustrator? So she talked to a medical illustrator who warned her that it was frustrating as an artist because you're for hire, you have to follow exactly what the client wants. Mega bummer for her. And she didn't want to end up at, say, an ad agency drawing nature for wine labels or car ads. Wasn't her bag. Too removed from science. So what was she to do? But I still liked working with, you know, the anatomy. I'd started really loving my anatomy courses. Mm -hmm. And I'd taken a comparative anatomy course and then an advanced one at the vet school. And so I thought, let me ask the instructor of that course about his job. And I thought he was a veterinarian, but it turned out he wasn't. I was totally surprised by that. How could the chairman of anatomy at the veterinary college not be a veterinarian? Right. He's like, surprise. Surprise. I'm a PhD. (laughs) Now, I was really confused. I did not grow up in an academic family, so I really didn't understand what a PhD was. Mm -hmm. To me, it was a doctor of 
philosophy. So it means you have to philosophize. So why uh-huh. is somebody in science philosophizing? Didn't make any sense to me. So I really didn't get it in the science world. It, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense unless you were just going to talk about the science. So like my biology professor, okay, I get it. I didn't understand that until I spoke to him and realized that, yeah, there, there, there are opportunities in exactly what I love, which is anatomy. Because mm-hmm. I didn't know that you could do more. I figured it's all known. It's all there, right? Right. Who had seen it? Oh, God, no. And then you realize, oh, they're still cracking things open and being like, what does this little fadoingy doing do? There you go. <gasps> so, so he said, you know, you really belong in a research career. But I didn't understand what that was. Mm-hmm. And he said, well... Why don't you do a summer work study with me? Because I had to do work study to pay for college anyway. Mm-hmm. And so he he had me working on this big jar of toadfish. <laughs> so, no, I like fish, but these, these are ugly fish. But I thought they were interesting because they kind of look like a frog that didn't quite become a fish. You know? <laughs> like game you know, of halfway. Didn't yeah. quite become a frog. It's just, they just have these giant, biggie, froggy eyes and giant, big froggy mouths mm-hmm. and skin tags hanging off of them that make them look like seaweed. You know, <laughs> they're kind of ugly looking things. Okay, quick aside, I just looked these creatures up and they are gloriously unsightly. They have a wide, warty-looking face and a just massive downturned mouth with the expression of like, if Jabba the Hutt lost a lot of money playing the slots. Also, they are horny. So a few years ago, Monterey residents were just puzzled by this low thrumming sound in the summer. It sounded kind of like someone farting into a vinyl diner booth. But to the toadfish, that translates to just a sonnet of lust, and I applaud them. Anyway, Joy dug them too. But they they had their own appeal to me. You know, they had these beautiful pectoral fins that they'd splay open that looked like it had rainbows on them, and they were just Ooh. gorgeous, you know, really pretty. Um, and so these, these fish were fascinating, and I spent forever drawing these fish. And he said, I want you to cut them open and draw what you see on the inside. Hey. Oh, I was in pig heaven. <laughs> That's I loved it. I was cutting up in these fish and I was making these drawings and he was going to use them in a dissection manual. I thought, wow, it's like even useful. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not just having fun. And so I did that all summer long. And I and then I asked him, you know, is there like a career in doing stuff like this? And he said, yeah, you could be an anatomist. <laughs> he says, That's what I am. I said, That's what you are? I thought you were a veterinarian this whole time. No, it's an anatomist. <laughs> and then I discovered research. And that's when I really got into anatomy as a career because he said, you should go to graduate school. You should become a researcher because as a research scientist, you have the ultimate and creative freedom, which is what every artist really wants. Right. And you could focus it on the animal stuff, which is what you really like. But the best part about being a researcher is that you have the ultimate creativity in that you can ask any question in the world, any question, and you get to design the experiment to answer it. So this is what a functional morphologist slash anatomist does. Joy had finally found her joy, and she was getting paid to poke at roadkill for the good of humanity. And I have that now. I have that creative freedom. I can study anything. Anything. (laughs) Any animal. Any part of any animal. Anything that's interesting to me about that, I can delve into that and just get really down into the nitty gritty and figure out how does it work? Why does it work? What's useful about knowing how it works? So that's when I said, okay, I'm in. 
This mm-hmm. is the career for me. And Yay. that's when I realized that I was going to be an anatomist. Mm-hmm. Before that, it was just science, you know, yeah. veterinarian, animal. But anatomist really came in my senior year. That's when I realized that. And what does it involve? I mean, like we're at a medical center, but as an anatomist, do people say, hey, I need to figure out what is going on with this antelope or this whale or this person. Let's ask Joy what's happening here. So that does happen, but not so much at a medical center for humans, mm-hmm. of course, you know, because I'm not in an area where people are coming to me saying, how does this antelope work? Yeah. <laughs> that might happen more at a veterinary college, I think. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is a better fit for, for what I know. Mm-hmm. But... In a medical center, I feel like I've added another layer of importance to my work because I can take information from the animal world and bring it to people. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what I do. So our lab, I, I kind of joyfully call it the animal recycling center okay? <laughs> because we get everybody's leftovers. We don't have to go out and kill the animals to get them. They're already dead. People give it to us. If they're, you know, if something dies at a wildlife center, we get it. It Ooh. dies in the road, we could get it. it. dies on the beach, we get it. It dies in a lab. Someone's using it for an experiment. We can also get that, too. Oh, cool. So we get all kinds of leftovers from, from wherever. And, and the more exotic and more interesting the animal is to me, because the exotic animals are adapted to unique environments. Mm-hmm. And these really weird environments, some of them mimic human diseases. Oh. So if we can understand how these animals can survive in conditions that, for us, are harmful, mm-hmm. we can copy that adaptation. And we can bring it back to people as a treatment for their disease. Like what kind of diseases? Well, for example, em- emphysema is something I'm now getting very interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we now call it chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. And CPOD can also mean chronic bronchitis, sometimes asthma. Either way, if you enjoy breathing, it's not something you want. My uncle Ron has it. And so, of course, I was all oracles. That's how anatomists say ears. Are you impressed? I looked it up. So this is a disease that takes away the stretchability of the lungs. So the lungs become too floppy. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get air back out of them. Oh. So this the elastic tissue is totally shot from exposure to whatever, mm-hmm. smoking or whatever else. And so people who have that problem, they have trouble breathing out. Oh, I didn't know As opposed to breathing in. Mm-hmm. They breathe in, but they can't get it back out again because the way you exhale is your lungs recoil because of they're stretchy. Mm-hmm. They're elastic, like rubber bands. Yeah. So the only time you actually force your lungs is when you blow out birthday candles or blow up a balloon. The rest of the time, you breathe out passively. Right. But not so for someone with COPD. They can't breathe out passively. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, there are animals whose lungs have various abilities to change their compliance, which is their stretchability. Mm-hmm. We don't. We have fixed stretchability, and if you lose it with a disease like this, you can't get it back. Ooh. So there are animals that can change their flexibility, mm-hmm. uh, particularly diving animals like whales. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so as they encounter different pressures, they need different amounts of stretchability in their lung tissue. Mm-hmm. And they, their lungs have to respond to recoiling because of the, the high pressures around them without tearing or, or distorting and so on. And so there's there's a lot of interesting biology going on when you deal with pressure changes on the mm-hmm. lungs or any gas-containing space. But if we can understand how these animals' tissues respond to the pressure changes and they can change their compliance as they dive, maybe that ability to change the compliance is what we need to take from that adaptation right. and bring that into someone with emphysema. So an anatomist or functional morphologist looks at structures and says, that's tight. How can humans do that too? Like the animal kingdom's 
an influencer and we're like, I love your shorts. And then we figure out how to DIY them with biotech. So Joy cites another example, gastroesophageal reflux, which is also a grade A bummer for those afflicted. People who are burping and regurgitating their food and, and the acid is getting up into their throat and it's irritating their larynx, mm-hmm. can even get down into their lungs and cause asthma, get in, into the back of the mouth and erode the back of teeth. You know, your molars can be eroded away from the acid. All kinds of bad things happen if right. you can't control that acid reflux. Mm-hmm. But there are animals that regurgitate all the time and don't have these problems. Now, are maybe they like they ruminants? Do, yes, ruminants do it. Now, maybe they've already gotten rid of the acid component because they're, they're dealing with a multi-chambered stomach and the acid digestion's in another part of the stomach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they've de-acidified what it is they're going to be bringing up. But they also don't insult their larynx. Colonel Larynx... You're nothing but a nonsense-spewing throat accordion. (gasps) Oh! How dare you! Every time this food comes up, it doesn't go down the voice box and down the wrong pipe and end up in their lungs and Uh have them gagging and coughing and having a, you know, sore throat kind of, you know, voice. But they divert it around that opening, and they don't choke on it. How do they do that? They essentially have a splash guard in the back of their throat. They have a splash guard? Yes. (gasps) But we don't have that. So if we regurgitate, it goes right into the opening of the larynx. It causes all kinds of problems. I just love the idea of you looking starry-eyed at a cow being like, how do you not get acid down your throat? How do you do it? Like, tell me your secrets. The cow's like, well, I've got a splash guard. <laughs> there you so go. exciting. <laughs> so these are the secrets that we try to find when we look at animals that are diverse. They don't even have to be all that exotic. Cattle are not that exotic. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at something that's different from a human, it's got something that makes it different. We want to know what that thing is. And is there something useful about that? So sometimes... If we look at very weird animals, the weirder they are, the better, because the more likely they have some unusual adaptation that hasn't really been fully explored. Mm -hmm. And being at a medical center, I'm prepared by understanding the sort of, you know, the whole human condition and the various diseases that can happen or the various injuries that can happen. So having that awareness, and, and most of that's through my medical colleagues, okay, teaching me about it, makes me better prepared so that when I see an animal with a weird adaptation, I already know what that application is going to be. Oh, that's smart. So I'm, I'm, pre- I'm prepared to find the fun things in mm-hmm. these animals that I then think can be developed into a protective or a, a treatment uh, you know, device for people. In your knowledge, you have a range of problems. So it's kind of like a puzzle piece. Like when you see the negative of that, you can go, ah. I know where that could fit. I'll know fit. it when I see it. It's right. one of those things. Yeah, you know? one of those things. Just like <laughs> pornography and obscenity. I'll know it when I see it, as they say. Now, how many different animals are you dissecting and studying like on the daily or the weekly? Are you like, I'm on a real whale kick? Or is it like you might get a raccoon in later today? Later today, I'm expecting an eye eye. <laughs> what in the hell is that? What is an eye eye? It's a lemur from Madagascar. Oh, are you serious? Where is it coming from? From uh, Madagascar? It's actually from, well, this particular one is on loan from Cornell University, Ooh. from a colleague of mine, um, who was the, the very same guy who gave me the toadfish to dissect, really? Dr. Howie Evans. Oh, my God. He's in his 90s. Oh, and you he's, guys are He's so loaned homies. me this eye eye to look at. We've just finished getting it MRI scanned. So it's supposed to come back up here to later today after mm-hmm. the scanning. And this eye eye is a really, really rare lemur. 
And it was actually collected in 1875, and it was at the time packaged in rum because they didn't have preserving fluids like we have today. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, that how, like... that's how old and precious this particular specimen is. Damn. And so it's pickled? It's pickled. Pickled in booze? It sounds like... Pickled the... in booze. Well, now it's in alcohol, but it was, <laughs> you know, in, in normal preserving alcohols as opposed to you know, some yeah. rum that was on the ship. <laughs> Just like Bacardi, like spring break that lemur so hard. You're like, we put him in a pina colada, but he's holding up fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you're going to look at an eye eye later today or later this week? Well, we're going to look at the scans from it. Cool. Because we can't open it. We have to return it whole. But we are going to look at the scans from this II. And are, is there a particular problem that you're looking for to solve with that? Like, does it have a crazy cranial No, I structure? actually don't even know what we're going to find yet. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at a really exotic animal, to me, it's like getting a present. I love her. How much do you love her? I love you this much. I can't wait to open the wrapper and see what's inside the present. I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm going to find. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to find something. Because otherwise, it would look like everything else. Exactly. If it doesn't look like everything else, that's what I want to know. I want to know why it doesn't look like everything else, and what can we learn from that? And maybe there's something in there that we can use for people. And you know, how how did you get... Because, I mean, I've seen these videos of you scaling whales. I mean, the most badass you've ever seen. There's a whale on a beach. There are, like, a hundred spectators. And there's you in full yellow slickers with like a machete scaling it like a tiny mountain and just cutting it open and like blubbers everywhere. I would like to play you a clip from Inside Nature's Giants, wherein Dr. Reidenberg has arrived on a beach in the pre-dawn dead of night to lead a whale dissection. And as she carves into the abdomen with something that appears to be a chef's knife. It's really, really fresh. I don't smell anything. It's like it's like walking down the butcher's aisle in the supermarket. All the meat's really fresh here. This animal, I think, is only around 24 hours dead. Uh, so we got a wipe. Get my face a wipe down around my lips. It's plenty. The most dangerous thing is if you get it in your eyes or in your mouth. And so I know enough to keep my mouth shut, but... <laughs> probably poked one of the intestines and that was just all the gas in the intestines just <laughs> sprayed me in the face. <laughs> How far are you? Oh. <laughs> that was probably better in the mouth. The whale intestine has released a death fart into her face and not only does she remain composed and professional, but jovial. How does she do it? And can she run for president? You're like, oh my God, like this is an art form that you, how do you get good at that? Because it's amazing. What does it smell like? How do you know where you're cutting? Like, (laughs) what do you do with the pieces? What happens? Side note, that was a lot of questions. Wow, that's a lot of questions. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll start with the first. So, so um, I don't remember which was the first, how but... How did you get... How, how do you... How did you... What was the first time you dissected a whale on a beach like? Because I imagine you got to do it on site. <laughs> yes, the first the first time I dissected a whale, it wasn't a really big whale. It was actually a fairly small whale. Buckle up, folks. Whew, this woman tells good stories. It was a pygmy sperm whale. Oh. And it was about, I don't know, 15 feet long. Oh, okay, and it that's actually, so big. it was on a beach, but not when I saw it. So it was my very, very first whale dissection. I was a very excited graduate student at the time. I didn't have a car, mm-hmm. so I got the call, 
And I thought, if I don't go down there right away and get the specimen, I'm never going to get another one because mm-hmm. when are they going to call me again if I don't show up, right? Yeah. And they said, you got to be here by 9 o'clock because the Smithsonian is coming to take it away. Wow. So if you want to just get a piece out of this, they just want the skeleton, you can come get your soft tissues that you need for your research. Whoa. Then at the time, I was very interested in, in how, whales, how whales are making sound underwater. So I needed to get the voice box. Mm-hmm. So I rented a car. Oh, no. Car rental places in New York don't open until 8. And um, Brigantine, which is where this was, near Atlantic City, is about two and a half, maybe three hours away. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was doing a, a very swift 55 out of New York. <laughs> and I got pulled over by a police officer oh, no. on the Garden State Parkway. And I remember so vividly, I, I didn't know you're supposed to stay in the car. <laughs> I got out of the car. <laughs> Because I thought I would, like, expedite this and get this over with. Yeah. So he was a little surprised I was already waiting for him on the shoulder. <laughs> You're like, I got a sperm whale to cut up. Yeah, I got to move, move here. I got to yeah. move. And uh, so so he asked me, well, why are you why are you going so fast? Yeah. They always ask that question because maybe, maybe you're going to have a baby or something. Right. I don't know, right? Right. Like, <laughs> no, I wasn't, wasn't going to have a baby. So I told him I was on my way to a stranded whale, which I'm sure is an excuse he'd never heard before. Uh, uh, officer, I'm about to give birth uh, to a baby whale. That's uh, also on fire. There's a f- there's a fire too, uh, in me. Please let me go. And 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 I thought I was being all official. I put on my white coat. I had my ID tag. Graduate student in anatomy. You know, I was ready. I was yeah. ready for this, right? And uh, and then he looked in the back of my car. Oh boy. And I had put everything I thought I was going to need in the back of the car because this was my first whale stranding. So I had gloves. And I had plastic bags, you know, big black trash bags. And I had scalpels and I had knives and I had bigger knives and I had bigger knives and I had machetes. And then I had all these things that like gardeners use because I thought I might need to clip ribs. So I had like these loppers and pruners and big wood saws. And I had all kinds of things back there. (laughs) In a rental car. In a rental car. But the thing was, he was looking at this, and all of a sudden, his face turned white. Now, he was white to begin with, but it got whiter. (laughs) He's looking at this stuff. And now I know why the cops, you know, they wear the sunglasses. You can't read what's going on with their eyes, right? He's looking at this, and, and he gets really quiet. And he says to me, what's all that for? Oh, no. And I realized why he turned white. I had heard on the radio the day before that the police had found a body that had been chopped into pieces in black plastic bags floating down the Passaic River. And I think he suddenly realized that I might be the murderer. Oh, my God. Because I had all the know-how and I had all the equipment. And there it was in the car, and I was running away as fast as I could. Oh, my God, you fit the profile a million percent. I know, and I was terrified that I was going to be taken in for murder. So, so I was, I got really nervous and, and, and that's not a good sign either because now you get nervous in front of a cop and they think for sure you're guilty, right? Yeah. God, I hope you didn't get lightheaded. So I didn't get lightheaded. I didn't have a a vasovagal reaction. I didn't pass out because that would have been really bad. So I, so I said to him, well, that's if I don't get there in time. I didn't tell him that the whale was already dead. I just said it was a stranded whale. So in his mind, there was this flopping around whale on the beach. And if I don't get there before it dies, I'm going to have to cut it up. Right. So he he went back to his car. And I thought for sure he's, just, he's trying to figure out if I'm the murderer, right? Right. And, you know, we didn't have cell phones either. So I, I couldn't call them and tell them what was happening oh. at this whole time. 
So he he radioed back to headquarters, I'm sure, to say what kind of crazy person he had found. Um, And they gave him permission to escort me. He came back and I never got a ticket. He escorted me. He said, I'm going to escort you to the whale stranding. He must have called ahead to the cop at the whale stranding down in Brigantine who said, yeah, yeah, we got a whale on the beach here. (laughs) Can you even with the story right now, though? So the cop down there held up the Smithsonian so they wouldn't leave. Oh, oh my God. Because it was well past nine by the time I arrived, I'm right? I'm sure, yes. And I'm following him and he says, you have to pay all the tolls. I'm like, okay, we didn't have easy pass back then. You know, you had yeah. to actually pay each hopper, you know, the, you know, the, the little coins. Did you have to pay the cops tolls too? No, he, okay. he went right through them, but I had to pay each toll. He would, he would go through and he'd wait. And I'd have to pay. And then, <laughs> then we'd go on and, 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 you know, sirens and everything. We were going re- really fast. Oh uh, and I arrived to my very first whale stranding with a police escort with <laughs> sirens and lights and everything. I made a big deal entry. <laughs> it was very memorable on many oh, accounts. <laughs> my God. Is it, that is the way to arrive, dude. That's amazing. So that was, that was my first whale stranding. <laughs> Did he stay to watch? He did not. Once I climbed on top of the whale, he was done. <laughs> it was like, okay, I'm out of here. She's going to make blood. <laughs> going to use those things in the back of the car. That made him turn white. <laughs> oh, my God. What pressure, though. I feel like in all of the fishermen's saloons, in all of the seaside towns, all over the globe of all time, that's got to be one of the best whale stories ever. Right? How do you, so it's a 15 foot whale. How do you know to scale it and where to start zipping into it? Well, most vertebrates are built on the same body plan. Well, so whether point. it's a 15 foot whale or it's a 65 foot whale, like the one, you know, that maybe people have seen on TV where I'm dissecting for Inside Nature's Giants, mm-hmm. the whale has the similar body plan to you and I. Mm-hmm. It's got a head, right? Yep. It's got a spine. It's got a heart, it's got two lungs, it's got one liver, it's got intestines, it's got two kidneys. It's got all the same things we have as mm-hmm. mammals. The only thing it doesn't have is hind legs, but there are remnants of that too. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for a particular organ, it's going to be in a predictable place because the body plan is pretty similar. Mm-hmm. So I know I'm looking for a voice box. I know the voice box is going to be in the neck. Well, whales don't have much of a neck. Right. They kind of go from head to body. (laughs) Right. They're kind of like dudes at the gym that are there a little too much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Very built up, right? And and particularly considering those muscles are being used for movement, Mm -hmm. you know, they are built up. So the whale's neck doesn't really exist as a neck like it does in us. But that's where I'm going to find a voice box. And that's what I was looking for. So it meant go to the back of the jaw. And cut it open. It's mm-hmm. going to be somewhere near the back of the jaw and in front of the front of the chest, which is a very small area in the whale. Mm-hmm. So you know you have one little area to look in, and oh, that's where wow. it's going to be. So, and what does a voice box look like in a whale? Well, <laughs> it's huge. Really? It's really huge. So imagine if your voice box was as big as a whale's in proportion to your body, okay? Oh, man. Not absolutely big, okay? Absolutely big. I've seen voice boxes of whales that are like 12 feet long. Okay, they're huge. You know, and they have a big sack under them that they use for recycling air that I could just climb into like a sleeping bag. Oh, my God. That's a really big voice box. Mm -hmm. But how big is that? Considering the whale is really big, it's just big as the whale's big, right? Mm -hmm. No, it's big even considering that because the voice box of a big whale, like, and I would say big whale, I mean a whale like a a fin whale or a blue whale or a humpback whale, Mm -hmm. that voice box is as big as a lung. You know, imagine your larynx. 
voice box went from the top of your shoulder down to the bottom of your rib cage. That's like having a saxophone (laughs) in your body. You're just talking through a saxophone. And then you've got these animals that can make incredibly loud noises. Mm -hmm. You know, some of these, the power behind some of these noises have been equated to a jet engine. Oh my God. So quick question. How loud is that? Well, a whisper between humans is about 20 decibels. Normal speaking volume, about 50. Shouting is 70. Jackhammers, about 100 decibels. Now, music starts to hurt at around 120, and a jet engine is about 140. Eardrums can rupture around 165 decibels, and at 185, the noise can literally kill you. Whales, louder than that. The lovelorn call of a lonely blue whale. reaches up to 188 decibels. And sperm whales like Holmabir, the clicks they use for echolocation. You ready for this? 236 decibels, which can be heard by other whales for thousands of miles. So anytime you see a heavy metal band just thrashing, crushing, know that there is a big wet leather pickle in the ocean, munching squid that is louder, and therefore everything in this life is just ridiculous. What do you get for the mom who burst you into the world? I know, a candle. Are you like, no, that's not quite enough. How about memories that she'll love looking at every day? Aura frames? I love them. So they're a digital photo frame. They were named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and by me. And Aura frames are Wi-Fi connected. You can add unlimited photos and videos, and you can invite as many people as you want to the frame. There are absolutely no hidden fees. There's no subscriptions. You can also react with cute emojis if you'd like, and you can show you love a photo. You can send congratulations or more. It's so wonderful that A, it's not a candle. And also, it's not sharing your photos on social media to look at. It's just there. You can share it with the people who you love. I have mentioned this so many times, but my parents have an aura that I got them. My dad loved that. I have gotten aura frames for friends, for family members, for family members of friends. So I'm a really big fan of them. I love what they do. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. So that's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the code ologies at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I love these things. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kid busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids
kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages, everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages nine to 14, an entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything, Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. That's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. And now when you are climbing inside, let's say a whale or another big animal, like what, it, what is that like? How do you, how are you finding your way around? What does it smell like? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a really good thing that smell-o-vision hasn't been invented yeah. yet <laughs> because I think most people would turn the show off Yeah, because <laughs> the smell is really bad. I mean, just imagine you've got 65 feet of rotting flesh, you know, you know how bad milk smells when it goes bad? Yeah. Now imagine you've got 65 feet of quarts of milk hanging out there, right? <laughs> so it's a, it's a pretty bad smell mm-hmm. when it's rotten, but like most things, you get inured to it after a while. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you put on perfume, maybe an hour later, you don't even smell it anymore. But yeah. if someone else walks into the room for the first time, they smell it, mm-hmm. right? I just looked this up, and it's called olfactory fatigue or olfactory adaptation. And our scent receptors essentially are are just over it. They're like, I'm looking for danger or food. And if I haven't eaten this or been killed by it, 
Forget about it. I don't care. The stench is like so five minutes ago. Well, that's what's like at a whale stranding. After the first hour, you don't smell anymore, but everybody who comes to visit smells it. And when you leave that stranding, everybody that you see smells it on you. Right. No matter how many showers you take. Really? Because the oil gets under your skin. Even when you're wearing latex gloves, it still gets under all that. Mm-hmm. And there's an aura about it. It's, you know, <laughs> like when you're around someone who smokes cigarettes and your hair smells. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's the same thing. Your hair is going to smell. Your skin is going to smell. Your clothing, if it, even if it was just in the vicinity, is going to smell. What do you do? Is there like a special soap that you're like, this, like this Time. linseed? Time. You just have to wait for it to volatilize out. Because, <laughs> I mean, you can wash off the snotty stuff that's stuck on your skin. Yes, that yeah. you can do. You can get rid of the oil that's on the outside, but you can't get rid of the oil that's moved into your skin. That's a good point. You know, it's it's now part of you. You just have to wait for it to evaporate off. How many whales do you think you've dissected? Oh, gosh, I think I stopped counting a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um it's a tough number to come up with because whales, to me, includes all whales, which means dolphins and porpoises, too. Mm-hmm. So if you start counting all of the cetaceans, whales, dolphins, and porpoises, mm-hmm. oh, that number's going to be well over 300. Wow. Maybe more. So quick aside, quick, quick on whale evolution. Okay, this is not the cetology episode, so I don't want to go into too much depth and spoil how bananas it is. But essentially, whales are very much mammals who started off as deer-like creatures who just hung out by water and sort of gradually slipped into the abyss forever and expanded. Just like, you know what? I'm going to dip out, land. Good luck with all your walking around. I'm going to go sail through water like I'm flying and never have to brush my hair. Also, I'm louder than your quiet-ass metal music, and we all know it. Peace. Bye-bye. And when you're dissecting any kind of animal, or when you're when you're uh, mapping out the anatomy of, of any kind of animal, are you are you ever struck by similarities with humans? Like, do you do you notice certain things about the brain that you're like, no, oh, that's a pretty human brain. That's surprising for this kind of animal, or. Um, Anything that makes you reflect on kind of your your own morphology? Oh, absolutely. Because humans are tetrapods, mm-hmm. which is a type of vertebrate that has four legs. That's so, so weird. You know, yes. <laughs> that's most of the vertebrates that we know, right? Mm-hmm. And even whales are tetrapods. They used to have four legs. Mm-hmm. You know, they still have hindquarters. Yeah. They still have a pelvis. And they still sometimes even have a remnant of a femur or a thigh bone mm-hmm. on that pelvis. How weird is that? Nubbins. But nubbins that are huge and pointless. Again, you're looking at a body plan that's very similar. So if I look at a whale's flipper, I am reminded of a human. Mm -hmm. Because inside that flipper are all the same bones that are in our upper extremity. There's a humerus, the arm bone. There's the radius and ulna, the two forearm bones. There's the carpal bones, all the little wrist bones. And there are, in fact, five fingers. It's crazy. And all the little bones of our hands Mm -hmm. are in a whale's flipper, except they've added a few extra little bones to the ends of the fingers to make them elongated. Mm-hmm. But that's about the only difference. <gasps> it's just like having acrylic nails under there. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> longer phalanges. Exactly. It's just very, very long <laughs> fingers, but they're they're webbed. Mm-hmm. And that webbing has become very stiff. So instead of like webbed feet like a duck has, you've got really stiff webbing in between those fingers. So when you look at the flipper, it's a paddle. Right. But it is supported by essentially a hand inside there and a whole arm at the beginning of it. And so, yes, you start to see things that look like humans. Mm-hmm. But they look like other terrestrial mammals as well. Mm-hmm. They might not look like a horse, because a horse in its ancestry used to have five digits, too. Oh! 
But a horse has reduced that down to walking on its middle toe. In fact, just the nail of its middle toe. That's what the hoof is. God, that's so weird. And if you look at, <laughs> at cattle, they're working. They're walking on two of those toes. Mm-hmm. And if you if you look at a bird, you'll see. Go look, next time you eat chicken, go get a chicken wing and look at it really mm-hmm. carefully. You'll see all the same bones that we have in our upper extremity, except you won't find all five fingers anymore. They've gotten rid of most of them. Mm-hmm. But you will see at least two, maybe three fingers there, because nature is pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. You take a body plan and you just tweak it. You modify it. You don't add something completely new you take something that's there and you morph it so it looks new it's just really twisted and different that's all it's not really new very very rarely do you see something that's actually new because Mm -hmm. that's really hard to accomplish right that's what we have a lot of fun doing you're looking at a new animal for the first time you don't know necessarily what everything does yeah so one of the questions is well what is this most like in a human what is this most like in the next animal that is closely related to it Where are the homologies, the things that have the same tissue origin, but maybe have become different structures, like the the wing of a bird and the the flipper of of a sea turtle, okay? So what else does Joy's job entail? And are you still getting to do a lot of drawing and sketching when you're doing this? Or oh, do yeah. You? Oh, really? That's one of the best things about this career for me, is it's a co- perfect combination of my interest in art and science. So what kind of drawing do you do? Do you use like a Wacom tablet? Do you have your watercolors out? Like, how are you capturing uh, I'm this? I'm very old school. Really? <laughs> Pencil and paper most of the time. Oh, is there any place people can see your drawings? Um... Usually the finished products can be seen in publications mm-hmm. because I'll then I'll take that pencil drawing and I'll, I'll flesh it out as well, a digital right. image. But would it kill you to start an Instagram of sketches? Will I convince her? <laughs> yes, it would kill me. Oh. You know why? For two reasons. Oh, man. One is I don't have the time to think about uh, no. putting stuff like that up. <laughs> and secondly, I don't want to let out information before it's really solid information. That's a good point. Strategic. You know, that's, that's what publications are for. Dang it. So we got to make sure that the information we're putting out is accurate because people will take, you know how people take stuff off the internet all no. the time. It's like, oh, it's the truth. I found it on the internet. It'll have to follow yeah. my publications then. <laughs> I know. That's my version of Instagram, right? <laughs> and but it's, a, it's so important to make sure the public gets accurate science information. In fact, that's one of the reasons I do those TV documentaries. Mm-hmm. Because as a scientist, I feel that we have an obligation to give information to the public. After all, they're the ones that funded our work in the first place. Most mm-hmm. work is done through grant funding, which is your tax dollars at work. Yeah. Or your donations if it's from a private foundation. But most people don't get any return on their investment. How is the public learning about the science that we do? Right. What do what do scientists do? We we don't have a normal job, okay? We don't we don't make a widget that you sell. We don't provide a service that you can purchase and have us come and do it for you. Although there are some scientists for hire, of course, that, that do work for companies, but but most scientists, academic scientists, are not for hire that way. Mm-hmm. So what is it that we do with our job? People really have no idea what we do because we don't sell anything and we don't provide a service. Uh-huh. What we do is we make knowledge. And we're supposed to give that knowledge back to the public. But what do scientists do? They publish that knowledge in highly technical journals that only other scientists are reading. Mm -hmm. So that's our ivory tower that we're stuck in. Mm -hmm. And we need to come out of that and get that knowledge back down to the public who paid for it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I feel an obligation to return that information to the public. And one of the best ways to do that is through various types of public outreach, public lectures, 
demonstrations, go to the schools, interact with the children. Podcasts. Podcasts. (laughs) Exactly. Interviews, TED Talks, (laughs) and television. Mm -hmm. Because all of these media are ways to engage the public in the science that we're doing so that they can learn. Mm -hmm. Why is it that I study whales in the first place? They're awesome animals. These animals are adapted to deep sea diving. They encounter huge pressure changes. If we can understand how they survive those pressure changes, maybe we can build better flak jackets for our soldiers who are essentially exposed to a pressure wave every time an explosion goes off next to them. Right. They don't do so well in those pressure waves. Whales do great in those pressures mm-hmm. as they change pressures voluntarily every time they swim up and down the water column. Mm-hmm. But they're doing something in their bodies, and we don't know exactly what it is. How come they don't get decompression sickness? How do they avoid the bends? All of these are very interesting questions for us. There's so many things that they do that we don't understand. How do they communicate underwater? How do they get those sounds out of their body when they're making them using an air-driven system, which is evolutionary baggage from having been a land animal? Mm -hmm. They're still using air. That's a liability for an aquatic animal. Because now you got to keep coming back to the surface to get more of it. Yeah. And every time you dive down, it shrinks to this tiniest little volume that you can barely work with. And if you have air in anything solid like a sinus, it's going to crack. Oof. So you've got you've to make adaptations that deal with the pressure changes. When we crack that code, hopefully we can make better transmitters for sound underwater, for communication devices or whatever. But there are all kinds of things that we want to learn. We want to learn how dolphins make their sonar. We know a lot about how they do it. Mm-hmm. We don't understand how they process it, though. Norky, talk, man. Right. And if we could, maybe we could make better sonar for ourselves. Dolphins can actually detect a mine buried under the sand. Okay, so wait. Whoa, what, 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 what? Okay, this is a thing. I just found myself on a wiki page entitled Military Dolphins. What? And it says, the dolphins and sea lions are trained by the Navy's marine mammal fleet. Dolphins are trained as much as police and hunting dogs and are given rewards such as fish on correct completion of a task. So dolphins are trained to detect underwater mines and enemy swimmers and then report back to their handlers. How weird is it that there are dolphins who are like, yes, yes, I mean, I appreciate the fish salary, but I also find my work very fulfilling. I'm good at my job and helping people. What? Not only can they detect it through multiple materials, we can't. Our sonar reflects at the first density interface change. Mm-hmm. But they can tell you if that's, that mine is flooded with water or air, if it's made of plastic or metal, you know, if it's ticking. <laughs> you know, there's oh all God. kinds of things that they can tell us. We can't see that. Our sonar is way too coarse. We can barely tell a school of fish from a whale going by. Uh-huh. It's just a blob on the sonar screen. You know, and the dolphin is looking at a fish and goes, mm, I know exactly what kind of fish that is. It's a butterfish. And I know how big it is and when it's going to turn and how many scales are missing on the right side and Whoa. where its swim bladder is. You know, they can see all of that. And we how can't. are they doing it? What's the closest we've come? Ultrasound. Mm-hmm. We can look inside and see someone who's pregnant. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was swimming once off the coast of Florida and two dolphins came over to check me out. I was pregnant at the time and I'm pretty sure that's why they came to check me out. Because oh they could see what's going on inside with their sonar. Oh, that's so nice. It was amazing. They stayed just out of reach. I could reach my hand out and almost touch them and it's, you know, they would stay just beyond the edge of my fingertips. Oh and my as soon as God. I would reach them, they would, they would dive under and come up surface behind me. I hear the 
blow behind my head. I turn around and they play the same game. It was always this game of keep away, but they were just close enough. You could almost touch them. They're like, why she got another little baby in there? That's right. I, I think they knew. Yeah. I think they totally knew and they were totally fascinated by why this extra little creature was on board. Oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> but they were probably able to see so much more than we could see with our simple ultrasound because mm-hmm. our ultrasound, you see it in one dimension. It looks like static. If you don't see it as a movie, you really get lost in the dots. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're seeing things in 3D and, you know, they've probably got all kinds of, you know, accommodations for the motion as well as the three-dimensionality of it. And they process it, interestingly, in their visual cortex. Mm -hmm. So they may be seeing it as an image, even though it's sound coming back to them. They're like, oh, it's a girl. And you're like, whoa, hey, how do you know? (laughs) (laughs) Now I just want to evolve myself back into the sea in a land where dolphins are my doctors and sea lions have my back. What is life? But since I'm land-bound for now, I have a question that I feel Joy won't judge me about. I have this theory that I always try to talk to um, to biologists about, and you're the one person I feel like will definitely give me a heads or tails on this, but no pun intended. But um, how do you feel about the automotive design and how much it's modeled on quadrupeds? I'm so fascinated by, like, we have the engine in the front, four tires, four legs, two headlights, and also genus and species, like a make and model. Do you ever think about that? Like when you're driving around, how we model um, things in our lives with like bilateral symmetry, airplanes like birds. Does that ever, is that just like such a duh for you? I wouldn't say it's such a duh, but I think biomimetics is a really important thing. You know, mm-hmm. modeling things on nature. I mean, the first airplanes were really modeled on birds. Mm-hmm. You know, they even tried to flap the wings. Out in Oregon, Hank Pettis took a running start to fame and fortune with his version of what the latest Birdman should wear. But his flyer went in the wrong direction. Down. Hard. Harsh bail, old-timey bird dude. If you look at submarines and their rudders, it's really not all that different than a fishtail. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I think biomimicry is important. Why do we have four wheels on a car? You know, it, you're right. It does kind of remind you of four legs. Mm-hmm. Why not two? Well, it's not as stable on two. Look how long it takes us to learn how to walk on two legs. Right. We start out crawling. It's yeah. way more stable. You know? <laughs> so it's just efficiency in design is, is based on nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are very few animals that walk around on two legs. It's not the most efficient uh, design for stability. There are advantages, which is why we do walk mm-hmm. on two legs. But, again, it is unstable. So, yeah, I, th- I think about it. But I think more about things when I think about car. I think more about... When are we going to have those driverless cars? That's oh, what I'm God. thinking about. <laughs> I know. I'm, I Every time I drive a car, I'm like, we're going to look back and be like, wait, you put just a human being who could just sneeze and kill people in this machine? This is ridiculous. <laughs> so I have two last questions. One is, what is the thing about your job that sucks the most? What's the hardest part about your job? The most tedious? The most like, oh, God. Reading. Really? <laughs> Believe it or not, reading. I hate reading. Really? I think that's why I went to anatomy, because all the books have pictures in them. <laughs> I think I'm mildly dyslexic in some way. I think I think decoding is, is more laborious for me than it probably is for the average person. I read very slowly. I can't read faster than I can hear the voice in my head saying the sounds mm-hmm. as I read. Some people can read a lot faster. I just don't decode that fast. Right. But I find reading really, really tedious. And... 
So yeah, it's a lot of info. I would say that's that's the worst part because as an academic, you have to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm on editorial boards of journals. I have to read. I do really, really careful reviews of articles that are given to me. I bet, yeah. And and I read every single word with intention, mm-hmm. and I write the same way. So I'm very slow at writing. So reading and writing, I would say, <laughs> which is kind so, of my nemesis. <laughs> and that's so impressive that you have the job you have knowing that that is a that that's a little bit of a struggle or that's like a little bit of a of a labor for you and on top of that you've achieved everything you've achieved it's like that that's even more that's even more inspiring you know well thank Um, you and what is I don't know if I would have qualified for extra time back in the day (laughs) (laughs) didn't have a label for what I had What is the thing that you love about your job so much? I know there must be like 12 things. Oh, there's so many things. But I think just the freedom to explore mm-hmm. is is the most amazing part of it. It just, I can, like I said before, I ask any question and answer it my way by doing the work. Mm-hmm. I love working with my hands. I love the exploration of something new, something exciting. It, every time I get a new animal to look at, it's like having a present show up in the lab. I'm like, wow, this is great. And I love doing field work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whales, they have to be done as field work. They're just too big. You can't yeah. bring them into the lab. That's not happening. And so I love being outdoors. And so field work is great. Traveling is great. I love going to exotic places to see exotic animals. It's so great that after going through Yellow Pages, going through all these different disciplines, you 1 million percent found the career that like is, you nailed it. Like you found the career where you get to draw, you get to learn, you get to help people. Like, like you, you figured it out. That must be, you must want to go back in time and be like, yo, little joy, you're going to be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think the, the best way to sum that up is I don't really feel like I go to work every day. I go to play. Oh. You know, if you're going to do your job the whole rest of your life, that's, you only get one life to live. You don't want to spend it doing something you don't like. Yeah. You want to go to work knowing it's not really work. Work's the wrong word for it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about it when I come here. I'm, I'm here to play. That's rad. And I love that later you're just going to be like, lemur, I got a lemur coming up. Maybe a whale. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. I'm you're just welcome. so excited to get to talk to you. And thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. It's been fun. <laughs> thank you. I loved it. So as always, ask smart people stupid questions because you never know. You never know what kind of glorious stories may unfold. Now, to follow up on your new obsession with Dr. Joy Reidenberg, catch her on Science Channel's Mythical Beasts. That premieres October 14th. You can find her on Twitter at Joy Reidenberg. You cannot find her drawings on Instagram as discussed, but that's okay. She's also on Facebook as Reidenberg TV. And Ologies is at Ologies on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, do give us a follow. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. And there are links in the show notes to all of this. There are also links to support even a dollar a month on patreon.com slash ologies. Uh, you can get amazing merch at ologiesmerch.com. Feel free to tag or DM me photos of you in it with the hashtag ologiesmerch. Mondays, I repost them on Instagram. Uh, thanks, Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis for all of the merch help. You're amazing. Um, be sure to find them tagged. Give them a follow. They're great. Thanks, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning the internet haven that is the Ologies Facebook group. And I owe a whale of thanks every week to editor Stephen Ray Morris, who also hosts the Kitty podcast, The Purrcast, and See Jurassic Right, which is all about dinos. Uh, Nick Thorburn made the music and is in a band called Islands. Um, side note, if you enjoyed the Melatology episode on bees, Mandy Shaw now has her own bee podcast called 
Beekeeper Confidential. Now, at the end of the episode, you know that I tell a secret. And my secret this week is that um, I had a dream. I was dating Oprah. And in the dream, I was like, this rules. She's great. And I think about that now every time I see Oprah. And I'm like, she's pretty great. Anyway, keep asking smart people stupid questions. That's the only way anyone learns anything. All right, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Hi, King Snorky, hereby banish all humans to the sea. Wow, it's like even useful, you know, I'm not just having fun. For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.